You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Margaret and Martin Glynn. Bridge is a tiny village which sits along the Galway-Roscommon border, north of Ballinasloe town in County Galway. The area is characterised by its unusual turreted nine-arch bridge that stretches across the Shriven River, giving it a distinctly medieval feel. Much of the surrounding region is very rural, with farms and small holdings dotted along the landscape. Margaret Glynn had spent her whole life in Ballinamore Bridge, where she resided in a two-bedroomed house on a 12-acre holding, along with her brother Martin. Neither sibling had ever married, instead choosing to live together and run the land, where they had farmed a small stock of sheep. As they advanced in age, the pair were said to have become increasingly difficult and set in their ways, with Margaret in particular described as being, quote, very cranky. By the late 1970s, both Margaret and Martin were in their 80s and their health was failing. Crippled with arthritis, Martin was confined to a wheelchair and Margaret needed a walking aid to get around. Dr Joseph Daly, who attended to the couple, had advised them on many occasions to go to a nursing home as they both required full-time care, but they were adamant on staying in their own house. Unable to live independently, in 1977, the Glynns decided to employ the help of Michael Joseph Kelly, who was the son of an old friend of theirs. The arrangement was that Kelly, a single man who worked as a steel erector, would stay in the house with the couple. He would help them out around the home and tend to the livestock, and would sleep in the same bedroom as Martin Glynn. However, this arrangement ended after a year, with Kelly no longer able to tolerate living with the couple who he described as, quote, very contrary and hard to live with. Following this, Kelly's brother Christopher went to stay with the Glens instead, but he too left after a short amount of time. Over the next three years, the situation deteriorated even further for the siblings. Martin, who by then was 87 years old, was completely bedridden, and Margaret, who was 85, could not care adequately for him. They relied on neighbours for daily assistance, but with their care needs increasing, this was becoming less and less feasible. The district nurse had been providing ongoing care to the couple, but they repeatedly fell out with her and told her more than once not to come by the house anymore. The local Meals on Wheels service was also directed not to call, as Margaret Glynn said that their dinners were, quote, trash. And so it was in December of 1980 that Margaret Glynn contacted Michael Kelly, then aged 27, and asked him to come back and stay with them again. Margaret promised that if Kelly agreed to look after them, they would leave him the house, land and all of their money in their will. He eventually agreed and returned to live with the Glynns in January of 1981. The arrangement was fine for the first few months, with Kelly continuing to work as a steel erector by day. But as time went on, his relationship with the Glynns began to sour once again. The couple became unreasonable and demanding, and if Kelly was not home by half past ten, they would lock him out of the house for the night. 
An argument also arose around Kelly's failure to report a dead sheep he had found on the land, and eventually Kelly went to see the Gardaí about the issue. When the officer spoke to Margaret Glynn, she said that Kelly had threatened to kill her, a claim which Kelly refuted vehemently. Following this incident, Margaret Glynn told Kelly that if he did not agree to give up work and stay in the house with them all day, then the Glynns would write him out of their will. On the evening of November 14th, 1981, Kelly found himself locked out of the Glynn house once again. He spoke to a neighbour named Michael Donahue, telling the man that the Glynns had been in great form earlier that day, but that he had subsequently been locked out of the house for unknown reasons. Michael Donahue advised Kelly to go back to his own family home, which was four miles away in Castle Blakeney. But instead, Kelly stayed at Donahue's house, going back and forth to try and convince Margaret Glynn to let him in. Eventually, at around 3am, Kelly managed to gain entry to the property. A few hours later, at half past nine the following morning, Donahue saw a flustered Kelly once again coming around the side of his house. He opened the door and asked his neighbour what was wrong, and Kelly replied, quote, Come out, the whole house is in fumes of black smoke. Both men ran over to the Glynn property, where there was smoke billowing out the door. Kelly asked Donahue if he could make his way in, and both men entered the house. Donahue went to Martin's room, but he couldn't see the bed or any other furniture through the thick smoke. He called out Martin's name a number of times, but got no answer. Meanwhile, Kelly had gone to Margaret's room to try and get her out, but his attempts were unsuccessful. The men ran outside and agreed that they needed to phone the emergency services, but as was common in the 1980s in Ireland, the Donoghue house didn't have a working phone line. Kelly told him that he hadn't been able to locate his car keys through the smoke in the house, so he set off on foot to try and raise the alarm. However, given it was a Sunday morning, many of the neighbours had gone to mass and so it was some time before he managed to do so. Fire units eventually arrived in from Ballinasloe and Loch Ray, and the firefighters entered the building to retrieve Margaret and Martin Glynn from the burning cottage. Dr Joseph Daly, who had also been called to the scene, examined both siblings, but unfortunately nothing could be done for either of them, and they were pronounced dead. The doctor noted that Margaret's body was burned along the left side. On first inspection, firefighters found that the fire seemed to have originated in Margaret Glynn's bedroom, with concentrated damage found along one side of the bed and across the headboard. However, apart from this, there didn't seem to be much fire damage or heat distortion. A number of candles were found on the floor, both around and under the bed. Father James Smith, who was the local parish priest, attended the scene and administered the last rites to the Glynns. As he anointed Martin Glynn, he noticed that the man's body was still warm. He anointed Margaret Glynn as she was being transported to the waiting ambulance, her body wrapped up. As forensic experts began to examine the scene to determine what had caused the blaze, the bodies of Margaret and Martin Glynn were removed to Portiuncula Hospital to await post-mortem examinations by state pathologist Dr John Harbison. It was initially assumed that the fire was a tragic accident, and that the Glynns had been overcome by the fumes and died of smoke inhalation. However, Dr. Harbison's examination revealed some surprising facts, which in reality left more questions to be answered than anything else. Martin Glynn was found to have died of natural causes before the fire. Dr. Harbison gave the cause of death as pneumonia. He found no injury of any kind to the body and no evidence of burning or fire damage. 
Martin Glynn's blood also showed a normal level of carbon monoxide, suggesting that he had not been breathing when the fire started. In contrast, Margaret Glynn was found to have had a number of unexplained injuries to her body, including bruising on the right side of her head, which extended down to the base of her neck. Bruising was also found along her spine. Despite the severe burns found along the left-hand side of her body, Margaret Glynn had no soot in her voice box, indicating that no smoke had been inhaled. There appeared to be an injury to her larynx and there was evidence of bleeding in the lungs. These factors, along with the absence of soot in the larynx, led Dr. Harbison to form the opinion that Margaret Glynn had died of asphyxia due to strangulation. On the basis of Dr. Harbison's findings, Gardie began to look closer into the lives of the Glens. Officers spoke to Michael Kelly, who gave an initial statement to Detective Sergeant P.J. Pryor, outlining his account of the morning of November 15th. He told the detectives that he had woken to the strong smell of smoke which frightened him. He said he jumped out of bed and pulled on his clothes and wellingtons, shouting to Martin Glynn to try and rouse him. Kelly said that he could see clouds of smoke coming from Margaret's room, and when he shouted for her, he got no answer. Given that the worst of the smoke hadn't yet reached the bedroom he was in, he assumed that Martin Glynn was okay, so he ran to Margaret's room to get her out. The bed was alight, and Kelly said he caught Margaret's feet and tried to pull her, but he couldn't shift her and eventually he was driven from the room by smoke and flames. He ran to the neighbouring house to get Michael Donoghue, and the two men went back in to try and rescue the Glynns, but their attempts were unsuccessful, and they were forced from the house by the smoke. When asked about his movements on the day before the fire, Kelly told Detective Sergeant Pryor that he had left the house to go to work at around 11am, and had returned back to the house at half past six that evening. Kelly claimed that Martin was in bed and that Margaret had retired to her own room at around 10pm, taking a candle from under the kitchen table, as she always did. When asked why Margaret Glynn would use a candle in a house that had running electricity, Kelly said that she didn't like to use the light, as there were no curtains in the bedroom, and switching the light on would compromise her privacy. He also said that she couldn't reach the light switch to turn it off from her bed, and instead, it was her habit to take a lit candle which she would place on the floor or on a chair by her bedside. Kelly said he had gone to bed a bit later and that when he lay down he could see the candle flickering through the open door of Margaret's bedroom. When Michael Kelly gave this account to Gardie, he failed to mention the fact that he had been locked out of the Glen's cottage the night before and that in reality he hadn't managed to get back in until 3am. In addition to this, when Kelly met Michael Donahue later in the evening on November 15th, he had asked him not to tell the Gardie about what had gone on the previous night. As the investigation into the fire developed into a murder inquiry, officers started to examine this initial statement given by Kelly in more detail. By all witness accounts, the Glynns had been difficult people to deal with, and now here was the person who was closest to them, with a big discrepancy in his statement. However, there were still a number of glaring perplexities hanging over the whole situation. Martin Glynn had died of natural causes, so how did that tie in with the suspected murder of his sister and the subsequent fire? On the 22nd of November, Michael Kelly was brought in for another interview, this time with Detective Sergeant Joseph Shelley and Detective Sergeant Patrick Lina. 
Detective Sergeant Shelley was a member of the Garda murder squad that operated during the 1970s and 80s in Ireland. The unit was an exclusive, hand-picked team of detectives who were well-known at the time for eliciting confessions during face-to-face interrogations, using tactics which were often rumoured to be heavy-handed. Detective Sergeant Shelley told Michael Kelly that they were making inquiries into the suspected murder of Margaret Glynn. The detective described the marks and injuries found during Margaret's post-mortem and asked Kelly if he knew how they had happened. According to Detective Shelley, Michael Kelly then broke down and confessed, allegedly saying, quote, I did it. She drove me to it. Following this, a full statement was produced, the nature of which would be disputed and called into question for decades to come. Michael Kelly was subsequently charged with the murder of Margaret Glynn and with a further charge of arson for the setting of the fire which had destroyed the cottage at Ballinamore Bridge. Kelly repeatedly protested his innocence across a number of remand hearings, answering the murder charge by saying, quote, I want to get it over with as fast as possible. I am completely innocent. Michael Kelly's four-day trial opened on the 22nd of March 1983. Outlining the prosecution's case, senior counsel Mr Martin Kennedy told the jury that Michael Kelly had come to live with the Glynns in January of 1981. He described how the relationship had soured over time, culminating in Kelly being locked out of the house on November 14th, until he had eventually gained access by putting the door in with his shoulder. Mr Kennedy recounted how the house went on fire the following morning. He said that when the bodies of the Glynns were examined, Martin was found to have died of natural causes. However, he said, Margaret Glynn's post-mortem showed that although she was extremely burned, her breathing had actually stopped before the fire began. It was the prosecution's case, he said, that Margaret Glynn had been strangled and that the fire was set in an attempt to destroy evidence. Patrick Cahill, who was one of the firemen who attended the blaze at the Glynn's house, told the court that his team needed to put on breathing apparatus before entering the home. He said that in one of the rooms he saw what looked like a white turnip or football in a bed, but this later turned out to be the body of Margaret Glynn. The fire seemed to be concentrated along one side and across the headboard of this bed, and upon inspection Mr Cahill saw four used candles on the ground, around and under the bed, lying on their sides. None of them were lighting, he said. The Glynn's nearest neighbour, Michael Donoghue, gave evidence next. He recalled seeing Michael Kelly driving to work at 11am the day before the fire. Donoghue said that he saw Kelly again at around 2pm that day, when Kelly told him that he was back early because he'd been unable to get materials he needed for his work. Donoghue asked Kelly if he had been in with the Glynn's, and Kelly responded that they had been in great form earlier that morning, but that now the house was all locked up, meaning he was locked out. Donoghue told the jury that Kelly spent the whole evening after that going between his house and the Glynn's cottage, trying to gain access. Kelly knocked on the doors and windows, but Margaret Glynn would not let him in. Michael Donoghue advised Kelly to make the journey back to his family home, but Kelly had refused to do so. Between half past two and three a.m., Donoghue saw Kelly knocking on the door of the Glynn's house once again. He shoved at the door which seemed to have something up against it on the inside. Donoghue said that he heard a few words pass between Kelly and Margaret Glynn, 
before Kelly said, quote, I'll not go, you fucking owl bitch. Margaret Glynn didn't respond to this, instead retreating back into the house, and Donoghue said he heard some noises, followed by Kelly saying that he would go when he got his clothes. Donoghue went to bed after this, and when he woke the next morning at 20 to 6, he said that everything was nice and quiet. But at around half past nine, after his wife had gone to mass, Mr. Donoghue recalled he had seen Michael Kelly coming around the end of the house, frantic. The two men went over to the Glynn's house and entered the property, where Donoghue described seeing a big roll of fire in the centre of the bed in Margaret's room. He went to Martin's room to see if he could save the man, but he had been unable to see anything inside because of the smoke. He couldn't make out the bed or the chair. Mr. Donoghue had called out to Martin twice, but got no answer. Unable to stand the smoke and heat any longer, Donoghue and Kelly left the house. Donoghue told Kelly that they needed to phone for help, but Kelly didn't have his car keys, and Donoghue's bike was punctured, so the accused set off up the road on foot to find someone who could help. Upon questioning from senior counsel Martin Kennedy, Donoghue said he had met Kelly again later that night, and that he had said, quote, anyone who comes now, the guards or security men, don't let on where I was last night. Under cross-examination from Mr. Patrick McEntee defending, Donoghue said that the Glynns needed a lot of attention. Martin was confined to a bed or a wheelchair and Margaret used a stick to get around. He said that both himself and his wife had been called on for assistance by Margaret Glynn regularly in the past and that there had been numerous incidents where one or other of the Glynns had fallen by the fire in the house. When asked by Mr. McEntee if the couple were bad-tempered, Michael Donoghue admitted that the years had taken their effect on the Glynns, and that he had seen them play cruel tricks on others, but they had never done so to him. Michael Donoghue's wife, Bridget, took the stand next. She said that Michael Kelly had come to her house on the Saturday afternoon complaining that the Glynns wouldn't let him into the house. She said that he returned frequently that evening, each time telling her the same thing. Bridget recalled that the following morning she'd gone to Mass and was shocked to learn that there had been a fire at the Glynns upon her return. Paddy McEntee asked Mrs. Donoghue if she was suppressing any information about the incident, but she denied that she was. She affirmed that her statement given at the time of the fire was the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Mr. McEntee asked Bridget Donoghue about her claim in her statement that Kelly did not have drink on him that evening, and whether or not this was true. She responded that she could not remember exactly what she had said in her statement 16 months before, but that whatever she had said at the time was the truth. She agreed with Mr. McEntee that she was annoyed with Kelly for repeatedly coming back to her house and complaining that evening. Patty McEntee said to her, quote, I suggest you sat and watched the Late Late Show and didn't bother going to the Glynns to see if they needed anything. Mrs. Donoghue said that she hadn't, that she had had a sore throat and she didn't want to leave her house. At this, defence counsel asked, quote, Was your throat too sore to go 500 yards up the road to help an old man who lay dying in his dirty bed? Did you not feel done out because Kelly was willing to help them out, and you were not? Bridget Donoghue responded that it had been Mr. Kelly's place to help the elderly neighbours. Then, Mr. Justice Gannon presiding asked Bridget Donoghue whether she knew that Kelly had been trying to get into the Glynn's house all evening. She told the judge that she did know he had been locked out, but she didn't know why and that it wasn't unusual for Mr. Kelly to find himself in that position. Mrs. Donoghue added, quote, We didn't like to interfere. Margaret Glynn was very active. She would be able to look after Martin and make tea for him. 
she agreed with Mr. McEntee that Kelly seemed anxious to get into the house to help the Glynns. On the second day of the trial, state pathologist Dr. Harbison gave evidence to the court, saying that he examined Miss Glynn's remains the day after the fire. He detailed bruising on the right side of the woman's head, which extended down to the base of her neck. He reported similar bruising down to Margaret Glynn's spine. He said that although there was severe burning to parts of her body, there was no soot found in her larynx. However, there was evidence of bleeding into the lungs. Dr. Harbison also said that the larynx appeared fractured, although this could not be verified. He stated, quote, In view of the injuries around the larynx and the bleeding into the lungs, I formed the opinion that she died from asphyxia due to strangulation. Dr. Harbison went on to tell the jury that Martin Glynn's post-mortem showed that he had died of pneumonia before the fire broke out, and he pointed out that both the Glynns had just 2% of carbon monoxide in their blood, which was within normal range for adults. The lethal concentration of carbon monoxide was 50%, he said. The pathologist continued, quote, These people had both died before the fire began. Under cross by Patrick McEntee, Dr. Harbison agreed that Margaret Glynn was more advanced in decomposition than her brother. This was down to being closer to the fire, he said. When asked about the evidence of strangulation, the pathologist said that while he found no asphyxial hemorrhages above the area of bruising on the neck, he did find some in the lungs. According to Dr. Harbison, this bleeding into the lungs was an indication of the effort made to breathe. When questioned further, he acknowledged that Margaret Glynn's hyoid bone was intact. Mr. McEntee asked if the bruising on Margaret Glynn's neck could have been caused by twisting and turning in an effort to get away from the fire, but Dr. Harbison said that he did not accept that this could happen. It was his opinion that if clothing or similar had become twisted around Margaret's neck, it would have had to have been attached or caught on something solid to cause strangulation. Further, Dr. Harbison asserted, quote, I cannot accept that a person would burn without inhaling smoke if she were alive at the outbreak of a fire. Next, Mr. Sean Cleary, second fire officer, said that he arrived at the house in Ballinamore Bridge at around half past twelve on Sunday the 15th of November. Mr. Cleary said that when he entered the house he found it difficult to believe that there had been a fire as he saw no evidence of the staining which one would normally associate with smoke damage. He told the court that he had expected to see evidence of heat distortion, but he saw none. Upon examination of Margaret Glynn's bedroom, Mr. Cleary discovered four candles on the floor, but he said that there was no hole going up through the mattress, so he concluded that these candles could not have caused the fire. On the wall beside the bed, there was an area of heavy smoke staining which rose to a peak, suggesting that this was where the fire had been burning the longest. However, there was nothing evident there to account for what had started the fire. Mr. Cleary said that there was no heating appliance in the room, and although there were signs that a fire had been lighting in the grate in the bedroom, it seemed that this had been extinguished before the blaze broke out. Following Mr. Cleary's testimony, a number of witnesses who knew the Glynns personally gave evidence. Father James Smith described the events of November 15th and how Martin Glynn's body had still been warm when he administered the last rites. Father Smith said that two days after the fire, Michael Kelly visited him to make arrangements for the funerals. The priest said that the man had given a very generous offering towards the funeral costs, and that Kelly told him that Gardee were giving him, quote, a hard time of it. He said that when he smelled smoke on the morning of the tragedy, he had gone straight to Margaret's room. 
Kelly lamented that if he had gotten Martin out of the house first, he may have saved him. On questioning from the defence, Father Smith said that he knew the Glynns were sick old people. He said that although he didn't find them difficult personally, he agreed that they probably were. When asked by Mr McEntee about Kelly's statement that the Gardaí were harassing him, the priest said that Kelly hadn't elaborated on what he meant or given any further detail. Dr Joseph Daly, who had been the Glynn's doctor for a number of years, gave evidence on the state of their health. He said he generally visited the couple once a month and that they were both in poor health and poor circumstances. The doctor said that Martin was crippled with arthritis, but that Margaret was able to get around. However, he said that they needed full-time nursing care and that he advised them many times to go into a nursing home, which they refused to do. Dr Daly detailed the events of November 15th, recalling how he was summoned to the Glynn's house. Smoke was billowing out of Margaret Glynn's bedroom and when he was finally able to get into the house, he found both siblings to be deceased. Counsel for the defence questioned Dr Daly on whether or not the Glynn's could live independently to which the doctor said that they could only survive if they had somebody to look after them. They wanted to stay in their house, he said, and they were determined to die together. Dr Daly agreed with Mr McEntee that both Martin and Margaret were determined to have their own way and that they appeared to be ungrateful and could be very difficult. He said that any time he visited them, he would hear complaints from them. Then Kelly's initial statement, which he gave to Detective Sergeant PJ Pryor, was read to the court. In it, Kelly detailed how he knew the Glynns and how he came to live with them. He also recounted the decline of their relationship, claiming that he had been locked out of the house ten times in the year he'd lived with the couple. When asked about the notes made by Margaret Glynn in the aftermath of the dead sheep situation, Kelly said, quote, I was shown notes made by Margaret Glynn in which she made allegations against me, but there is no truth in any of them. She was always making these notes, especially when I came in late but I passed no remark on her as I thought she was mad. When asked about the Glynn's financial circumstances, the accused had told the investigating guardie that both siblings had accounts with the Bank of Ireland in Mount Bellew and that there should have also been money in the house. This statement also contained Kelly's first account to guardie regarding his movements of the evening before the fire, in which he falsely claimed that he was in the house from half past six. On the third day of the trial, Detective Sergeant Joseph Shelley recalled his interview with Michael Kelly, which took place a week after the fire. The detective claimed that upon asking Kelly about Margaret Glynn's injuries, the man had broken down, saying that he had done it and that Margaret had driven him to it. Detective Shelley told the jury that Michael Kelly told him he had been locked out of the house all day and when he finally managed to gain entry, he went to bed. According to the detective, Kelly said that when he woke the next morning, he discovered that Martin Glynn was not breathing, so he went to Margaret's room. A portion of Kelly's statement was then read to the court. According to an article printed in the Irish Independent, the statement read, quote, Maggie had driven me daft. I picked up a blanket off her bed and put it over her head. I then pressed on her neck with my right hand and she started shouting, Don't do it, Micheline. I kept pressing on her neck until she stopped breathing. The statement went on to describe how Kelly had set fire to the blanket before going to the Donoghue's house for assistance. It continued, quote, The reason I killed Maggie Glynn was because she had driven me insane, giving out to me, and had said bad things about me. In Kelly's defence, Patrick McEntee put it to Detective Shelley that he had bullied Kelly during his interview and had hammered his fist on the table. 
Detective Shelley denied this and also refuted Kelly's claims that he had, quote, grabbed the accused by the back of the head and threatened to put him through a wall. Detective John Gallagher gave an account of Kelly's demeanour when he spoke to him after his appearance in court on November 23rd, when he was initially charged. According to the detective, Kelly had said, quote, The sooner I leave this world, the better. A mistake is a mistake, but murder is something else. Detective Gallagher recalled how Kelly had also allegedly told him, quote, I wish to Jesus I had got out before this. I don't care what happens to me. It's terrible. Oh, God help me. He said that Kelly had later added, quote, I had nothing to do with the Glens. I wouldn't lay a hand on them, and you know that. Didn't I take her for the pension on Friday, and we got on great? I did not lay a finger on her. Detective Sergeant PJ Pryor told the court how he had arrested Michael Kelly on November 22nd on suspicion of causing malicious damage by burning the Glen home. He took Kelly to Ballinasloe Garda Station where Kelly stated that he was innocent and hadn't killed the elderly siblings, whom he referred to as the old pair. After Kelly's interview with detectives Shelley and Lina had finished, Detective Pryor went to the interview room where Shelley told him that Michael Kelly had made a full confession and had admitted murdering Margaret and setting the house alight. Detective Sergeant Pryor told the jury that he had asked Kelly how he was feeling, to which he allegedly responded, quote, How would I feel? She wanted to stick me many times and I walked out. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, why did I do it? Wouldn't I be a happy man tonight if I walked out? He also said that the accused seemed remorseful and that when he was charged the following morning, Kelly allegedly had replied that he didn't know he was doing it. Then Mrs. Margaret Kilkenny, who was the public health nurse for the district, recounted her visit to the Glen House on November 11th, four days before the fire. She claimed that Kelly had asked her, quote, How long do you think this will go on? Mrs. Kilkenny responded by telling him that since he had come to live with the Glyns, he had given them a new lease of life and that they could last another five years. She asked Kelly if he would think of leaving them and she said that he had told her that he couldn't, as he was already at least £5,000 down as a result of staying with them. Next, Dr. Declan Gilsonen, a pathologist, gave evidence on behalf of the defence. He told the jury that he had attended the state pathologist's examination of Margaret Glynn's neck structures and that he had seen no evidence of asphyxia, as Dr. Harbison had suggested. Dr. Gilsonen said that the bleeding into the lungs could have been for many reasons, including heart failure. He said that he didn't agree with Dr. Harbison's conclusion that the bleeding was caused by asphyxial hemorrhage. In an unusual move before the closing speeches were made, Michael Kelly made an unsworn statement to the jury, stating, quote, I did not kill Maggie Glynn. I did not set fire to the house. The statement I made to detectives, I made it through fear and suggestions that were put to me. I signed my name through fear. In his closing argument to the jury, Mr. McEntee told them that there was at least a possibility that, having set her bed on fire accidentally, Margaret Glynn had injured her neck as she attempted to turn or get away from the fire. Prosecuting counsel Martin Kennedy addressed the court, saying that avarice was the motive for the crime. Kelly wanted to get his hands on the land. The jury deliberated for four and a half hours before returning with a unanimous verdict finding Michael Kelly guilty of the murder of Margaret Glynn. As directed by Justice Gannon before they retired, the jury found Kelly not guilty on the charge of arson. Michael Kelly broke down and wept in court as he was sentenced to the mandatory term of life imprisonment. Paddy McEntee applied for leave to appeal, but this was refused by the judge. 
Despite being found guilty of the murder of Margaret Glynn, Michael Kelly continued to maintain his innocence. In October of 1985, following an appeal by a deputation acting on behalf of Kelly, Justice Minister Michael Noonan promised to have the prisoner moved from Mountjoy Prison to an open-style prison on a state farm, where he would be allowed to go home on occasional weekends. However, following a cabinet reshuffle in early 1986, Alan Dukes took over as Justice Minister and he subsequently refused to implement his predecessor's decision. As reported in the Connacht Tribune, in protest to this decision, Michael Kelly went on hunger strike, resulting in Minister Dukes stating that he wouldn't negotiate with Kelly while he was refusing food. Kelly's siblings, a sister who was serving as a nun in Ballinasloe, and two brothers, implored Kelly to change his mind, but he continued to reject food. A hundred people from his home parish of Castle Blakeney signed a petition beseeching Kelly to give up his strike, but he still continued on. Eventually, after more than three weeks without food, the matter was finally resolved. In 1989, an application was made to appoint the Chief State Solicitor, Mr Louis Dockery, as an administrator of the estate of Martin Glynn. The case was a unique one in Ireland at the time, and it centred around the fact that in April of 1981, Martin Glynn had willed the 12 acres at Ballinamore Bridge to Michael Kelly. Under the terms of the will, the farm was to be left to Margaret Glynn for her life, with the remainder to Michael Kelly absolutely. From 1981 to 1984, Kelly's brothers had been using the land for grazing horses, and Martin Glynn's surviving second cousin was now objecting to this, and he wanted the state to take control of the land. As Michael Kelly was still serving his prison sentence, he was unable to take any steps to administer the estate. In the end, Justice Gannon made a temporary grant, admitting the will and codicil to probate, and gave a grant to the chief state solicitor to take in the assets to protect them until Kelly was in a position to apply for a grant himself. Michael Kelly was released on licence in the early 1990s, having spent 10 years behind bars. He continued to maintain his innocence during his sentence and following his release. In the meantime, Detective Sergeant Shelley, who had taken Kelly's alleged confession, continued to come to public attention. Following the trial of Kelly, Shelley went on to become embroiled in the Kerry Babies case, which resulted in a young woman named Joanne Hayes and her family being intimidated into giving false confessions about a murder of which they had no knowledge. Shelley was also accused of assault by Ms Hayes's brother. Eleven years later, Shelley, who had by then been promoted to the rank of detective superintendent, arrived in Letterkenny a week after the death of Raffaut cattle dealer Richie Barron. Mr Barron had been killed in a hit-and-run, and as a result of the actions of Shelley and a number of other senior officers, and a young publican called Frank McBrearty Jr. was put in the frame, with his whole family finding themselves on the end of an horrific campaign of Garda harassment and intimidation. Yet again, in 2000, Shelley found himself at the centre of another controversy when he was called to an incident in Abbey Lara, where a man named John Carthy held his family under siege. Mr Carthy had a history of mental illness and a history of heated relations with Gardee. Shelley was designated as scene commander and what followed was a number of failures on his part which resulted in the shooting death of Mr Carthy by armed Gardee. For more detail on that case, go check out episode 60. Ultimately, by the early 2000s, it transpired that Joseph Shelley was involved in every tribunal into Garda behaviour to that date in the history of the state. In 2003, ten years after his release on licence, 
Michael Kelly applied to the Court of Criminal Appeal to have his conviction quashed. Writing for the Connacht Tribune, Aidan O'Fuelon reported on the details of Kelly's appeal, which centred around Kelly's claims that newly discovered facts showed it would be unsafe to continue to accept that Margaret Glynn had died from strangulation. He said that there was a failure to consider the possibility that Ms. Glynn had died from inhalation of poisonous fumes given off by the fire. Kelly also stated that an expert in attribution of ownership would be contesting the authenticity of the statement in which Kelly had allegedly confessed to the murder of Ms. Glynn. In 2007, a three-judge panel heard evidence from Michael Kelly. They accepted that at the time of the original trial, the defence team were not furnished with certain photographs of Margaret Glynn's body. When these pictures were subsequently examined on behalf of Kelly by an expert pathologist, it was claimed that new evidence came to light. Acting on behalf of Michael Kelly, Anthony Salmon, senior counsel, also told the appeal judges that a new expert would give evidence that cast doubts over the reliability of Kelly's statement to Detectives Shelley and Lina. In relation to the post-mortem photographs, an expert pathologist called Dr Perdue, who worked for the UK Home Office, stated that the pictures did not safely show evidence of bruising around the neck. Dr Perdue said that there had been, quote, such a degree of decay to Margaret Glynn's body that it would be unsafe to diagnose bruising. It was Dr Perdue's opinion, based on these photographs, that the cause of death should have been recorded as, quote, unascertainable. Under cross-examination by counsel for the DPP, Tom O'Connell, Dr. Perdue was asked if it was unusual that two people would die from natural causes in the same house on the same night. Dr. Perdue responded by saying that it would be more unusual for one person to die of natural causes and the other to die of unnatural causes. Dr. Perdue also said that the claim that Michael Kelly had gone into Margaret Glynn's bedroom, strangled her and then set fire to her bed was not consistent with what he found in the photographs. Dr. Perdue also cast doubt over the portion of Kelly's alleged confession where it was claimed that while strangling Margaret Glynn with a blanket over her head, she had pleaded with him to stop. Dr. Perdue said that if this strangulation did in fact occur, then it was highly unlikely that Ms. Glynn would have been able to speak while somebody was attempting to strangle her. Northern Ireland's state pathologist Dr. Jack Crane testified on behalf of the DPP. He said that he had studied Margaret Glynn's initial post-mortem report and that while he agreed with most of what was reported, he did not agree with Dr. Harbison's conclusion that Miss Glynn died of manual strangulation. However, Dr. Crane did agree with Dr. Harbison's conclusion that there was nothing to suggest that Margaret Glynn had died from natural causes either. Michael Kelly's alleged confession was also called into question when Dr. Michael George Farringdon said that by using a method known as QSUM, he had analysed the authorship of the statement and found that it was the work of more than one person. This supported Michael Kelly's claim that the confession was coerced. Dr. Farringdon admitted that while the science is not widely used, he said that his services had been requested by a number of agencies in the UK and the US. In February of 2008, Michael Kelly's appeal was rejected. The court said that although the missing photos constituted a newly discovered fact, they doubted if such prejudicial photos would have been used in the original trial in the first place. The court also said that they did not accept the use of the QSUM technique in relation to the statement made by Michael Kelly to Gardee. The CCA was not satisfied that the technique had a properly established scientific provenance. In a final bid to have his conviction declared a miscarriage of justice, 
Kelly applied to the CCA to refer his case to the Supreme Court on the grounds that the CCA decision raised issues that hadn't previously been dealt with by the Supreme Court. As reported by Aidan Ofwelen in the Connacht Tribune, this application related to how the CCA evaluated and resolved a conflict over newly discovered facts in the case. However, the CCA ultimately found that it was satisfied that no law of public importance had been raised in Michael Kelly's application, so the matter would not be referred to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, after almost 30 years of protesting his innocence, 20 of which Michael Kelly had spent as a free man, his bid to have his conviction overturned was at an end. To this day, he maintains his innocence and despite his conviction standing, a question remains as to whether the tragic events of November 15, 1981 amounted to murder or whether they were simply a series of unfortunate events which resulted in a grave miscarriage of justice. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Maeve Long and Eva Boyle. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Aileen Spearin. Additional writing and production was by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Hyoid, hyoid bone. Hyoid bone was intact. Hyoid bone, hyoid boin.